Hi, and welcome to Diaries of Social Data Research, a podcast where we take a deeper look into the research diaries of interdisciplinary collaborations. We're your hosts, Lucy Lee and Katie Key. Welcome to our podcast. Today we have our first guest is Kenny Joseph, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the University at Buffalo. He works in the Computing for Social Good group, where his research focuses on the dynamics and cognitive representations of stereotypes and prejudice and their relationships with sociocultural structure and behavior. He was previously a postdoc at the Network Science Institute at Northeastern University and has a PhD in societal computing from CNU. Hi, Kenny. Hey, Lucy, thanks for having me. And our second guest is Sarah Sugars, is a faculty fellow at NYU's Center for Data Science and a research fellow at George Washington University's School of Media and Public Affairs. Their research in computational political science examines American political behavior in a variety of settings, including online conversations, formal debates, and interactive games. They have a PhD from Northeastern's Network Science Institute. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, it's nice to be here. And today we'll be discussing Kenny and Sarah's paper, Misalignment Between Stance Expressed in Social Media Data and Public Opinion Surveys, which was published in the Proceedings of the 2021 Conference on Empirical Methods in Natural Language Processing. This is joint work with Brian Gallagher, John Green, Alexi Quintana Matei, Zijian An, and David Lazar. This paper looks at four different stance targets, Donald Trump, COVID-related lockdowns, face masks, and COVID-19 vaccines. As the title describes, this work compares participants' self-reported stance in online surveys with the stance inferred from posts of the participants' self-volunteered Twitter accounts. The paper uses stratified sampling to select a subset of about 1,400 tweets, of which the authors annotate themselves for stance on the four targets. They find that when at least one author is at least one annotator is very confident in their annotation, there is relatively high agreement between the two annotators assigned to the tweet. They also find very low recall comparing tweet annotations to survey responses with neutral stances. This challenges the prevailing assumption that stance detection on social media is better at capturing opinion dynamics, since the author's findings seem to suggest individuals typically tweet only when their minds are made up whereas surveys can capture responses as individuals are making up their minds. Um, Sarah and Kenny, can you build upon my summary here, clarify it, and talk about the implications of the findings of your paper? Uh, I don't know. That was, a, that was a pretty darn good summary, Katie. Um, but I think what I can say is um, that uh, where we were coming from on this was was really a question of, of what can stance detection methods tell us and what can't they? So the origin for me was um, Zijun and I were looking at, can we map uh, output of a stance detection model for mass to some survey data at the state level um, uh, from the New York Times sort of uh, percentage of people in the state um, that supported mass wearing or not, right? And, so we were trying to line those up and they didn't really line up. And then the question we started asking ourselves was, well, why would we expect them to line up, right? What is the, <laughs> it seems like they should, but really like 
uh, is that true or not? Um, and so I knew that folks at Northeastern were working on this survey and the thought was, well, maybe we can find people who got the survey question and had the had tweeted about a variety of things and those those should line up right um and i think kind of going from there um my my big my big takeaway here is is that you know i was pretty surprised at how little those lined up um afterwards it makes sense yeah hindsight's 2020 um but but i learned a lot about how to think about what stance detection can and can't tell us um and how that correlates with surveys and in many ways, I think I came to this from the opposite perspective, where uh, there's something that's very appealing about the idea of being able to use Twitter as sort of a stand-in for public opinion surveys. Uh, you know, fielding your own survey is expensive and can take time, and people are just tweeting their opinions for free. Um, but I, I think going into this was kind of skeptical that those things would align. And if anything, I was surprised at the amount to which there was alignment. So I think part of the thing that's one of the things that's really interesting about the study is sort of being more clear about when there is alignment and when there is not alignment and sort of the, the differences between those things. Based on um, the topic of this paper that it's like about COVID, I'm assuming you're studying COVID while COVID was happening. And so one of my questions is when did this project start? And also what was it kind of like living in like this meta, like studying something that's actively happening? Yeah, so uh, COVID, COVID is still happening, um, and it's it's a thing that's going on. Um, so I guess in you know with any project, where you start the origin is <laughs> you you can start wherever. Um, so in many ways, you could say this project started with the beginning of COVID, um, in that very um, near the beginning of the the start of the pandemic. Um, David Lazar's lab, along with collaborators at other universities started fielding um, this COVID states survey. Um, so it's a, a bi-weekly, bi-monthly, <laughs> I think those might be the same thing. Um, it happens <laughs> every other week, uh, they release a survey um, and, the, and that has been covering all 50 states. And the first one came out in, I think, April of 2020. So it's been sort of a, an ongoing thing since then. Um, and then as part of that survey, they're collecting people's Twitter handles and sort of asking for you know, permission to use their Twitter data as well. And so that sort of led to this specific project where we sort of, we did have this data set where we had the survey data, but then we also had the Twitter data. Yeah, so I think, um, uh, I think that it's kind of interesting to think about what parts of this were kind of in movement before COVID and then how COVID kind of shifted it, right? So, so you know, I've, I and Sarah as well have, have uh, been working sort of in this area of trying to measure public opinion um, kind of pre-COVID. Um, but like Sarah said, you know, once COVID hit, there became sort of very clear targets uh, for that kind of research. Um, and, you know, I was a bit skeptical, frankly, of, of trying to sort of jump into COVID research. I think, you know, um, especially as someone who was, you know, caring for a young child who without daycare and stuff like I, I you know I, I was trying to kind of hang on to the few things that I had going before and just try to finish some stuff but I think in this case there was sort of a, a marriage of like the research questions that I were interested I was interested in happened to line up with this data set that was being collected sort of due to COVID um, and at the same time I think there were sort of like ways that I, I personally and I think the others on the team as well could could try to adapt those kinds of questions to to do something 
potentially useful for, or that felt potentially useful uh, to the extent that basic research can be, uh, felt potentially useful for, for sort of looking, um, looking at what's happening uh, in the world today. Um, um, yeah. Can you elaborate about um, the various collaborators on this project and when and how they got pulled into the project? Because it's quite a diverse set of collaborators from many institutions. Try. Uh, Sarah, I can give this a go. Um, so, um, Zijian is a graduate student at the University of Buffalo who works with uh, works with me, and uh, so so he and I earlier were kind of working on on what I discussed earlier. Um, and I I think what happened was we had been sort of thinking about how to measure stance uh, towards masks for for some time in this group um, and Sarah and Ryan and I had had a bit of a discussion about that um, and John and Alexi were working on the survey side um, and when we started to to form questions about how much we really trusted these these mask stance measures we started to to have a chat on on the slack that we're all in um, about how we could potentially leverage the survey to look at those questions and I think it also helped on the survey side for them trying to validate some of the survey data. So, so I think it really originated out of like a bunch of people who happened to be in a collaborative space, uh, trying to find uh, questions that were sort of mutually useful. Yeah, and I think uh, maybe, maybe this is just because I, ha I have a degree in network science, but I, I think it's partially a network uh, phenomena as well, where, um, you know, David Lazar has a lab that's part of the Network Science Institute. And so I'm at NYU now, but I had graduated out of that lab um, Kenny was a postdoc at that lab. And so we sort of had informal social connections that existed pre-pandemic um, and, and venues for sort of talking about and kicking around some of these ideas, regardless of other things that may be happening in the world. Um, so it, it's just sort of things sort of aligned as our, our mutual research interests kind of emerged with the, the availability of this data set. That totally makes sense. Um, I think one of the exciting things for me about this paper was I found these findings somewhat surprising given how much stance detection from social media or, you know, um, public opinion polls uh, being correlated with, with social media and Twitter especially. Um, so was it surprising that previous studies hadn't tackled this misalignment? And were you surprised about like the actual substantive findings yourselves? So, um... Surprising, yes and no. I mean, I, I think in any any single research project, there's only so much you can do. So in many ways, it's not surprising to me that you know people would take the tool of stance detection, apply it to Twitter data, and potentially not worry too much about how well it aligned or not aligned. Um, obviously, I think that's a very important question, the degree to which it aligns, but in, in some ways it's not surprising that it hadn't been done <laughs> earlier. Um, definitely it was, was time for somebody to do it. Um, but it's also, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Like you do need a data set like this where you have survey information and Twitter information. And that's not a common thing to have. It's, it's a hard task. Um, and the other thing, you know, one, one of the sort of results from the survey or from this uh, paper, I think really emphasizes that the degree to which things align or don't align can be very context dependent. So, you know, I can imagine that there are some contexts in which 
that people are studying in which overall these things do align pretty well. Um, so like if, if you're trying to use Twitter to you know, predict presidential election results or something, like you can tell based off what actually happens in an election, how well your model did at using Twitter to predict that regardless of whether stance was aligned or not. Um, but when you're working with issues that are sort of evolving in real time where people's opinions aren't necessarily fixed and where people's opinions on issues change over time. So, you know, one of the, the big things we found in this is that, you know, people's opinions on masks and vaccines and lockdowns, if you're talking about that in April, 2020, that is a very different type of opinion than if you're talking about that in, you know, December, 2021 or whatever. Um, so, yes. So I guess in some ways surprised, in some ways not surprised as well. <laughs> yeah. I think there's, there's sort of two really interesting parts of that question. Um, one is like how we worked through uh, the way I interpreted it, at least Katie, sorry if I'm misinterpreting, but like how we worked through the decision to like kind of write this thing up um, to, to, to do this piece of research and like, I don't know if this is common for, for you all, but this definitely a feeling that I have with this paper and most papers is like, I, there's no way that no one has not done this thing. Right. Um, and so you spend a lot of time trying to figure out whether or not people have done it. And in this case, I think we found a lot of papers doing that, that compared sort of macro signals of Twitter to macro, um, social signals in, in really interesting ways, um, in ways that, you know, an EMNLPP paper doesn't allow you to, to, to dig too much into the related work. Um, but, but there are some really cool papers that, that we found doing that. Um, and in doing so then to, to me, at least it says, okay, well, why has no one done this comparing individual survey data to individual Twitter data? I think there's good reasons not to, right? Cause it's, it's actually often the case that you don't care about individuals, you care about aggregates. Um, and so I personally spent a lot of time thinking, is there a reason to actually do this? I think, I think there are, I think the most obvious one in NLP is that we, we try to see whether our stance detection methods are accurate. And I think like very quickly you get into really tricky questions there, right? Like if a tweet says that um, nothing having to do with Trump, right? But because stance annotation is, you know, basically an exercise in stereotyping, the, the annotator decides that they're a Trump supporter and that's what the survey says. Well, if the tweet doesn't say it, but the annotator does and the survey does, then is, is the annotator right? Or are they off topic? Um, and I think those kinds of questions for me suggested that this was maybe an interesting thing to do. Um, kind of moving forward then, was I surprised at what we saw? I think initially, yes. Like, you, you know, again, kind of as more of an NLP person on this team, like I would have hoped that our ground truths are actually ground truth. And I was a bit surprised at how they weren't. Um, and then you look at the reasons why, and it becomes sort of clear um, that there are plausible explanations for that. I think, you know, the one other piece there for me, uh, again, thinking through the research process here is like, uh, I, I think then it sometimes gets scary once the explanations are, are obvious, right? The Duncan Watts, like it's obvious once you know the answer is how do you kind of write that sort of research up? And that's that's something I'm still still learning how to do, but I think with this team in particular, we were able to find sort of the ways in which some of us thought it was obvious, some of us didn't, and what we all thought was interesting and not, which was which was a really fun um, experience to have. Yeah, so 
building from that, um, I like this sentence in the paper where you say, Twitter may be a better place to study public opinion at the meso level. Can you elaborate on how you think about micro, meso, meso and macro levels in your work and the appropriateness of different measurement techniques at these different, different granularities? I think that... Um... I think that the the general idea here is the it's certainly for me at least like this paper suggested that you know stance detection is billed as a, a tool to detect change in opinion and um, I think what we see is there there doesn't seem to be a lot of people tweeting uh, about things before they've made up their mind um, they they seem to respond to events. And I think people respond to events for like emotionally valence reasons. And, and, you know, we just didn't see a ton of evidence that people were, were going to change their minds all, all that often. Um, and so I think that kind of rules out the individual level. Um, and then I think you move, move up to the mezzo or macro level. I think where Twitter becomes useful at the mezzo level, if I'm remembering what we were talking about correctly here, uh, is that uh, scale becomes an issue at the mezzo level for surveys, right? So that, um, to look at uh, subpopulations, you need a, a fair amount of data, which is harder on surveys, right? But on Twitter, um, depending on how you collect your data and the information you have about people, you can sort of make interesting inferences at the meso level. I think the the ways that you're willing to infer those subpopulations is is a, a separate topic of discussion that that's important. Um, but but nonetheless, at least from a n size of sample perspective, it is possible. I'm curious, were there moments during the um, process of completing this project that were like a major pitfall or challenge or something that you found particularly difficult, difficult that you had to like make big decisions about? Uh, the fact that there was a pandemic going on uh, definitely was a challenge. So this whole thing was conducted remotely, um, mostly over Slack messages and comments in an overleaf document. Uh, I think we had a couple of video calls, but it was largely asynchronous. Uh, so that was def definitely a, an interesting challenge, although also a, a benefit, I guess, that we can sort of all work on our own time. Um, I also think broadly, in terms of the content of the paper, you know, there, there are so many interesting questions that came up around, like, what really is opinion? And like, where does it live? <laughs> so like, if I say that my opinion is X on a survey, you know, there's a possibility I'm lying, but like, assume I'm not lying. Like, is that my true opinion? And if I, if I tweet out X and you read it and you think that I think Y, is that true or is it, are you misreading me? Um, because also when you think about the process of annotation, like in many ways, the annotator plays a similar role as like a user scrolling through their Twitter feed. So if an annotator, if, if a person scrolling through their Twitter feed makes assumptions about a Twitter user based off their tweet, then in some ways, like there is a signal in terms of how that's interpreted, whether or not that is what the original tweeter meant. Um, so, you know, this is a, a paper for, for EMNLP um, and I think it's a, it's a great paper, but I, I think one of the challenges was trying to think through these big conceptual questions, but also not get stuck in them for the purposes of this specific paper. Yeah, I'm gonna, yes, and Sarah, um, I think on the, the side of, it's during a pandemic with a lot of collaborators, um, I think especially during a pandemic, but at all times for me, uh, 
trying to figure out how much to ask of your collaborators and when to ask them and what you should expect is a really, really hard piece of the research project that I think sometimes gets swept under the rug. And so um, um, just that uh, with this many folks uh, during that time was challenging. I think Sarah is also then right about, um, you know, what to narrow down to um, for this particular paper. Uh, I think we probably went through maybe three or four drafts of, of intros and um, even maybe a couple like uh, like attempts at starting different research questions before we sort of settled in on on what we actually wanted to write about, um, which again, like Sarah said, for EMLP has to be super narrow, so. Yeah, and we also spent a lot of time thinking about sort of exactly what annotation task we wanted to do uh, sort of in addressing the research question, um, which in some ways I think was where sort of the bulk of our time was spent. Like once we actually had the annotation task, then we did the annotations and we did the analysis, but like figuring out exactly what the question was and how we wanted to ask it was, I mean, I guess that's hard in any research project, but <laughs> was was a challenge. So I want to follow up on something Kenny said, and then maybe we'll come back to annotations, but you know, Kenny, you brought up this really big challenge that I think uh, is pretty universal to uh, academic collaborations that, you know, you're kind of volunteering for this, but not really. It's also people's jobs and people's um, professions and careers and livelihoods depend on these collaborations working. So for both of you, what concrete advice would you have to our listeners who are trying to manage big groups or small groups and figuring out how to communicate and ask for the work that they need from their colleagues? Talk to each other all the time. <laughs> I think it's my biggest piece of advice. And I, I think, you know, in any time, but particularly in a pandemic, people are also going to have other very serious demands on their time. Um, so both, you know, as yourself, be open with your colleagues about what your capacity is and sort of what your engagement level is. Um, but then also when you're asking things of other people, I think be, be understanding that, you know, people, people might have other things going on in their lives, um, professional or otherwise, um, that may be more important at the moment. Yeah, I think I 100% agree per usual on everything with, with what Sarah said, um, in that, like, the best thing that I think we, I think I actually maybe learned from this paper that like the best thing you can do is sort of pre-specify the roles. Like, you know, here's what, here's what ex is expected of, of you. Here's what's not expected of you. Right. And that's like, obviously a collaborative thing. I'm making it sound declarative, but it's a collaborative process by which if everyone understands, you know, all right, I have to write this section or I'm going to annotate this many tweets. Um, I think this worked out really well because we spent a lot of time actually, I think, figuring that out. And once we figured it out, the actual work happened fairly quickly. I think the one thing I'll say that's sort of outside of this particular paper that like, you know, is on my mind quite a bit these days is like, they don't teach you, at least I didn't learn, I don't know, maybe y'all did, but um, uh, they don't, they, I didn't really get taught, and this isn't anything on my advisors, it sounds like it is, but I think it's just like not part of the PhD process a lot of the time to learn how to manage. And it takes a long time to learn that um, when you shift, roles you become manager and that's not always fun because that's not necessarily what we got into this to do um but like you learn how to do that i'm still learning i'll always be learning that but um i think that's a skill that uh you're right katie uh i'll take the implication of the question is one that um 
is worth practicing. The other thing that I would add to that, so I, I often think of it as the choosing a restaurant problem where, um, uh, you know, if you're with a group of people and you're trying to figure out where to go to dinner, you can stand around for hours being like, but where do you want to go for dinner? And like, nobody wants to be that person to be like, this is what I prefer. Let's just do what I prefer. And then everybody else feels like they have to go along with that. But the reality is you need somebody to be like, okay, there's restaurant A, there's restaurant B. If anyone has any preferences, no, okay, we're going to restaurant A. <laughs> and in many ways, that's like, that's what it means to like lead a project a lot of the time. And I think there's a way to do that that's collaborative and deliberative where you're not just like saying what the rules are, but you're kind of laying out a few options, giving space for input, and then sort of making a decision while allowing people to weigh in on the decision. And I, I think Kenny did a really excellent job of this on this paper. Um, but that, I guess, is sort of my metaphor I use for collaboration is like, at the end of the day, some, somebody needs to choose a restaurant or else you'll just be standing around talking about it for hours until everybody's hungry and cranky. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Well, yeah, I love that metaphor. I am going to start strategizing with how my projects are going <laughs> using all of this advice. Um, can you talk about the internal discussions you had that led to your decision of annotating the tweets yourself in-house? I was actually looking at this. I was looking at our Slack channel. Um, I don't know. I think we had a bunch of different mediums, but I at least looked through one of the Slack channels that we were we were on. Um, I think there were there was a reason why we did it, which is we weren't we did a pilot ourselves, and we weren't we we realized how hard this task was. We were surprised by how hard the task was. Um, was one reason. The other reason is just privacy. Um, we didn't feel comfortable um sharing the full tweets and we believe that if we anonymized it to the extent that we believe we needed to 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 keep the anonymity that that the task would have been essentially worthless so those were the reasons that i think we did it in the first place sir you can correct me if i'm wrong i think that it was extremely valuable uh for us to have done it that way afterwards because we learned a ton about the task i was looking through and we had you know the week that we were doing the annotations was all like, I can't believe that this survey response was linked to this tweet. There were a couple of times where I thought it was a bug and I had to like hand go back to Excel sheets uh, from surveys to confirm. Um, um, so, so I think it actually made the paper considerably better that we were able to, to sort of collect those qualitative insights from this sort of quali quantitatively aimed process. Yeah, I agree. I think um, the original motivation was largely the privacy issue as well as some other logistical things. But I do I do agree that it made the paper so much stronger that sort of we as authors had actually spent so much time looking through the diversity of tweets and stance that were coming up and had a really good insight into what people were actually talking about when they were talking about these topics. So um, following up on that, uh, in your ethics statement, you write, our work cannot be reproduced with the same data, but we believe it is replicable with the same methodology. So it sounds like you had a lot of discussions about privacy and ethics, but can you talk more broadly about how you think about reproducibility versus replicability versus robustness, especially in this space of computational social science? I can start, yeah. Um... So uh, it's quite possible that I, in the ethics statement, used 
the sort of incorrect term, but I think the broader thought here was um, to privilege privacy first. Um, we had, we had, as you you said, Katie, a, a lot of discussions about how to make this available. So the community we talked about, you know, we could do a bag of words, or we could, um, you know, somehow shuffle things around. Um, because it, it's certainly true that this paper for the research community would have been more useful if we gave everyone the data. But, um, but I mean, you know, it was sort of ethically and potentially legally infeasible with the way the survey data was collected. Um, um, and so it was kind of off the table for us, which made it easier on the legal side. Um, but I, I do think that this, this, um, this notion that you put the ethics first and um, and then you you try to, if you can't release the data, describe the process. Um, because what I anticipate to be replicable is not our data, but our process. So hopefully if you do the same thing with someone else's data, you get the same results. And if not, then like it's problematic anyway. Um, so so we tried to make it as useful as we could while, while privileging ethics. I think I answered the original question. There. Yeah, and I think with this particular project, the, the privacy issue was even more important because it was linked to the survey data. But in any project where you're using data generated by humans, so even if it's just Twitter data, you know, those people don't necessarily expect their data to be used by researchers and they might delete their data and you might not delete it from what you have you know, posted publicly. Um, so just being really conscientious about sort of expectations of privacy and how how data might be used um, beyond it, beyond your own use, um, I think is, is really important for any research project. So Kenny earlier mentioned that he's an NLP person and Sarah's bio talks about being a computational political scientist. Where do you see yourself located in these interdisciplinary spaces? Because both of you cross paths in this network institute, with network science institute, which is already interdisciplinary. So, what do you see as your your field or your home community, and how do you see yourself like just in this space? So, I'm actively on the job market right now, so I'm gonna um, plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> my answer is is uh, if a department hires me, that is definitely my field. <laughs> Um, I can go wild. Um, so I, I would say that uh, it's a constantly evolving question in the context of who I'm with. So I think in the context of this paper, I'm the NLP person, but in the, the majority of, of settings, for example, in the computer science and engineering department, they look at me as essentially a sociologist, right? Like I am far, if we put computation on uh, on the left and and social sciences on the right, um, I am sort of pretty far over for this department to the social sciences, but in this paper, I'm uh, probably the furthest over to the computer science side. And then, right, there's there's also this context of Sarah uh, identifies as a political scientist in certain respects, um, uh, and more broadly as a com computational social scientist, whereas most of my work sort of aligns better with social psychology and even within there, sort of the more sociological side. So, so I, I, I try to I try to situate myself in this space relative to the people I'm working with and relative to um, uh, relative to uh, the conferences I'm I'm targeting with particular work and just trying to find the right place for the right work. Um, 
my home community is probably ICWSM. That's where I feel kind of the most at home. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a challenge. I'll just say one more thing on this. It is a real challenge for someone who's kind of interested in a bunch of different methods um, to, to identify uh, kind of a single community, um, which I really feel is kind of what people should, should probably do at least early in their careers, right? Just kind of find a community and engage with it. And so, you know, I did a, what I think is maybe not the best thing is to try and bounce around to a bunch of different communities. And so I'm still, still learning how to, how to deal with this. Uh, I don't know, I guess probably we all are. Yeah, so building from that, um, you know, we had Sarah's wonderful metaphor about like sort of the restaurant, where are we going to go? Who's leading this thing? How do you how do you think about when you're in an interdisciplinary group? How do you think about deciding what roles are better for you as opposed to someone else? Is that always clear? And what, what advice can you give to other people that want to, you know, reach across a field and work with somebody who doesn't have the same background and discipline of, of them? Um, how do you how do you figure out both how to assemble the team and then how to assign who to do what? Yeah, so I think again, communication is really important here. One of the things I was thinking about during Kenny's last comment. So I am definitely more on the social sciences end of things, but I am off, often like the NLP person in a project, um, but I'm not nearly as much of the NLP person as, as Kenny is. So like on this project, I was the social science person and others, I'm more of the technical person. And it it really can vary a lot depending on who your co-authors are and what the specific project is. Um, but in terms of managing that, I think, you know, some of the, the first questions, I guess there, there's two ways to think about this. You can think about it at the project level where maybe you have a larger project that turns into multiple papers, um, or maybe you have just sort of a specific project. So like with a specific thing, there's kind of this data set and there's you know lots of different things happening with this data set. And then Kenny really had the idea for this specific paper. And so he kind of pitched it to other people who were in the orbit of working on these types of topics. And a few of us were like, oh yeah, I'm really interested in those questions as well. Um, and then, you know, people's roles, I mean, through conversation, but people's roles sort of became clear, both in terms of like, you know, what specific things they were bringing. So like uh, John and Alexi were both very active on the survey side. So really emphasized that piece of the project. Um, and, you know, people would also negotiate in terms of their time and availability to invest in this project. And some people had more time and some people had less time. Um, but I, I do think it's sort of an, an ongoing conversation. Um, for new collaborations, or particularly like if there's a new project that seems like it is going to turn into some amorphous paper, one of the first questions I like to ask people is like, where are you thinking of submitting this paper? And like, what are your priorities in terms of author order? Um, because, you know, people are at different stages of their career also, and like different outlets and different author order can have a very important impact for junior scholars. And, you know, it doesn't mean that I need to be first author on every paper because I'm a junior scholar, but like, you know, I, I need to be mindful of being first author on some publications so that I'm like getting my name out there, but I'm, you know, can help out on other publications and be second or third or whatever author. Um, but I think it's really important to have those kinds of conversations early so that when you start really digging into the work of the project, everybody's clear that, okay, so like what we're working on now is an EMNLP paper that is Kenny's paper. There will be other projects that will be for whatever venue and will be somebody else's paper. Um, but just sort of being 
sort of constantly having those kinds of conversations is really important. And I, I feel like sometimes it can feel uncomfortable to have those conversations, but the more you have them, the less uncomfortable, like it just seems like a normal thing to talk about. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I, I'll go back to the restaurant metaphor. Like you have to choose a time to meet at the restaurant. You can't just be like, here's what we're doing, right? <laughs> it's just kind of part of the logistics of planning. Yeah, I'll second what Sarah said about venue. Um, that that can make the decision. I think, as as we all probably know, uh, about who's going to join a paper and who's not. If if you know, particularly for junior scholars, if if the paper's worthless on the CV, then you know I'm pretty cautious about sort of approaching other people to on their CV. I'm I'm cautious about approaching people to to work on things unless there's sort of a reciprocal piece. For for example, for a journal. Um, you know, I think I'm I'm very lucky to have a department that's pretty supportive of interdisciplinary work. So it's something that I consider a bit less. Um, but I think from a personal perspective, um, you know, I, I happen to really like kind of being in the middle. I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert in NLP. I wouldn't consider myself a sort of card-carrying sociologist. Um, and, you know, I really like that. I really like being able to, to speak on both sides. I'm not sure professionally it's the best move, right? I think like academia privileges people who have niche expertise and for good reason, right? That's like part of what academia is about. Um, but, you know, I, I happen, I, I enjoy sort of being able to, to be conversational on both sides, although uh, maybe not sort of um, uh, making advancements within uh, a particular field, but trying to, to draw between them. And I think, um, um, you know, if, if others are interested in sort of finding that niche as well, um, uh, take my advice with with uh, many, many grains of salt. But I think what I've found beneficial is I've found, um, uh, I've sort of found parts of social science that appeal to me most and try to learn them as best I can. Again, not as not as well as a, as a card-carrying sociologist, but I think I know enough about the areas that are particularly of interest to me to, to be, uh, conversational with with experts in that that region. So this question is directed at Sarah. You have a PhD from Northeastern's Network Science program. Can you talk about what Network Science, what this program is like, what it's, um, and also talk about like what being a computational political scientist really means? Sure. Yeah. So I love the Network Science Institute and the PhD program there. It's a incredibly interdisciplinary program. Um, so I was more on the social science side of things, doing uh, political science, communication kind of work. Um, but there are people who are more on the CS side, people doing physics, people doing all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, people in academia talk a lot about interdisciplinarity, but it's hard when it's a system that has been so thoroughly siloed for so many years. Um, but it's... Uh, really just you know, an incredible group of students and colleagues um, and the opportunity to learn from so many different people and different types of people. Um, in many ways, one of the things that I particularly appreciate about the program is it's, it's made me really aware of a lot of the jargon or specific terminology that's used in different fields, which I think has made me a better communicator and a better educator as well, because like, I, I know that you can have perfectly smart people who don't understand what exactly a term means because you know that term has a very specific niche definition in one community. 
And I've seen conversations go off the rails because two people are using the same term, but they mean totally different things. Um, and so you like, I, I feel like in such an interdisciplinary environment, I've gotten very used to sort of being conscious about like, what terms am I using? Am I actively defining my terms? And it's sort of like a piece of the education in a way that I think is not typical in more traditional programs. Um, uh, I guess in terms of network science broadly, it, it is uh, broadly the, the study of, of things and how those things are connected, <laughs> um, which you know can apply to many different fields. Um, I, I think one of our instructors at one point said that like the underlying assumption of network science is that the connection between things are as important or more important than the things themselves. But then what those things are and what those connections are can be basically anything. Um, so learning how to think about that and how to model these kinds of systems, I think I found to be an incredibly helpful and valuable skill set. Um, yeah, I feel like there are more parts of your question that I've now forgotten though. <laughs> for, for the sake of time, we'll, we'll ask a similar question for Kenny. So Kenny, you graduated from um, CMU from the societal computing program and then did a postdoc with David Lazar at Network Science Institute. Can you talk about your own journey as well as sort of intersection and distinction between social computing, computational social science, network science, like these, these fields that you've you've touched throughout your, your career? Yeah, um, societal, the societal computing program at CMU was, um, was interesting in the sense that uh, the so the when I came in the program was called uh, computation organization and society which is sort of a a bit more general um, and the the department reflected it so there were a lot of people working in privacy user centered privacy there were people working on supply chain um, we were sort of network analysis and text analysis. Um, and we were closely linked with the software engineering department. So there were folks working on like software. So, so it was just like a huge mix and the, the core of it was, uh, was computation, right? So we were, I was trying to figure out like there were people involved in all of this and there were computation involved in all of this. And so it took me a while to kind of grasp this, this uh, area of computational social science and, and sort of the fact that that was where I wanted to find my niche relative to, you know, user-centered privacy, which I think feels different. I can't, I can't say uh, necessarily that's the case, but, um, you know, I wanted to use computers to, to better understand people. Um, this is a bit of an aside to your question, but I think what's really interesting for me now is looking at computational social science and how it interacts with the, the fact community, the fairness, accountability, and transparency groups, and EMO, and, and um, AIES, and all of those conferences, looking at sort of uh, the intersection of computation and people in a very different way. And I've been trying to figure out personally where I fall on that spectrum. Um, I think network science for me was uh, just um, uh, an exercise again in, in like learning that, you know, people viewed computational social science in, in totally different ways. Like I had never heard of political scientists and how they were working with this stuff. And so, um, so Network Science Institute for me as a postdoc was mostly learning more about computational social science, um, um, but both of them were, were awesome sort of immersive experiences in interdisciplinary places. So our next question is about kind of the feedback that you got for this paper. Um, was this paper 
like, did it undergo revise and resubmit or get rejected? And if so, how did you respond? And what did you learn during that process? And also what other reactions you got from other people aside from reviewers? Uh, okay, so um, so it it got, uh, so EMNLP was the first place we submitted it. It got, you know, pretty, pretty good reviews, I would say. Um, I think the major concern for the reviewers was the replicability one, which, you know, we, we've already talked about, so I won't dig into that. Um, in terms of responses from uh, people, one thing I guess that's worth noting in the research process that also sometimes gets swept under the rug is like publicizing your paper. And Ryan and Sarah and many of the folks at Network Science Institute are like world renowned, John as well. Like uh, I, I begged, I think Ryan was the end up ended up being the one who posted maybe you Sarah like I just begged someone else to do it because I'm terrible at that um so I got you know good feedback on on the web but um uh I think of that whole process Lucy that you're sort of talking about that piece was like um I think the piece that's the most interesting is how you sort of move the paper into other people's eyes afterwards and I think in terms of the review process and sort of reception in many ways this is one of the easier papers uh, that I've worked on um, but in, in some ways, I think that goes back to your early question of like, were you surprised that nobody had done this before? I feel like a lot of the people that I talked with and shared this work with were basically like, finally, somebody has done this. This is like, this is something that we knew was missing, but have been sort of intentionally ignoring because we weren't going to try it. Like we didn't have the resources to try and address it, but people were generally very excited that somebody had sort of looked at this particular area. So um, a meta-level question, what was for each of you one big thing you learned from one another during this project that you're going to take away to other projects? I have one, so I'm going to start because um, <clears throat> I learned it from Sarah and I looked back through our Slack and thought about it for a bit. But I, I remember a moment where we were comparing these, um, where we were comparing the annotations that we did with the surveys and it was pretty apparent that they didn't really match. And I was thinking, how the heck are we going to sell or, or, or tell people that like these two things don't, don't work. These two things that I expected should be the same, aren't the same. We had a Slack meeting, a Slack Zoom uh, meeting. And um, what Sarah pretty quickly convinced me of is, is that as she mentioned at the beginning of this talk, that those two things really aren't the same. Right. Um, and moreover, not only are they not the same, but they're not the same and both still worth measuring. And that was the important piece for me, right? So even if these things we're measuring online don't match surveys, that doesn't mean that they're useless. That means that, that we have to understand them as different constructs. And Sarah was the first one to point that out. John Green also has a very cool paper that I think is out in preprint that talks about, you know, how we should understand that from a, a sort of theoretical angle. So what I learned from, from Sarah and John and, and Ryan also had this perspective. I was the only person who didn't understand this, but I still learned it, um, was how to think about, you know, not as, as an, shifting over to my NLP side, right? Like not as things as being right or wrong, but just like different. And I think this gave me a new perspective on that. Yeah, and I think um, for me, I hadn't done that much work with annotations before, like I, I had, but I guess I, similar to, to what Kenny was saying, like I always thought of annotations as something where like, you know, you put annotations out on MTurk, you get your results, you look for the like intercoder reliability, you choose the most common label, and then you have your ground truth. 
Um, so just going through this pro whole process of even thinking about what should the annotation task look like and really appreciating all the nuance of that annotation task um, and sort of how different ways of setting it up or asking the question can have such different impacts uh, was something I thought Kenny was, was really thoughtful about sort of how, how complicated of a question that is. It's not as easy as like, okay, you, you throw a bunch of tweets on, on MTurk and then you get your data back. <laughs> um, so that, that was something that I thought was really valuable for me. So we're reaching the end of our time together. And I was curious if there's anything you'd like to add that we didn't cover yet before we wrap up. I will say it's tough to talk to folks and not ask the questions back. So, uh, so uh, the only thing I'll add is I, uh, I'm going to ask these, keep these questions in the back of my head and ask them the next time I see you both. But uh, no, I appreciate the opportunity to reflect on our research process. I learned a lot just from reflecting on it. So thank you for, for giving us the chance to do that. Yeah, thank you. This was really fantastic. And I guess my, my closing words of wisdom are just like, Interdisciplinary work is really interesting and it's really great. And I'm I'm glad that you have a sort of a whole podcast dedicated to this research project because it's, you know, it's it's not obvious how to do these things a lot of the time, but it's I think incredibly valuable and important. Well, thank you. That's our main goal is to demystify it and hopefully bring more folks into the interdisciplinary fold. So thank you so much, Sarah and Kenny. We've really enjoyed talking to you today. <laughs>